Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Elliott, the editor of hardcopy.ie. We've got something a little bit different for you today. Anyone who knows me will also know of my love of classic rock music and my utter adoration for the band Van Halen. So joining me on the line today is author of Van Halen Rising, a biography of the band's early years, Mr. Greg Renoff. Greg, thank you for chatting about my favorite subject today. Hey, Brian, it's one of my favorite subjects, too, or maybe my favorite <laughs> subjects, so we're on, we're on the same page. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I go around in circles talking about Van Halen, but that's just one of the, that's just what happens when you're a Van Halen fan. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, sure you know. Uh, there's, yes, I do. There's, uh, there's always some, uh, some angst and some excitement of being a Van Halen fan. So we will definitely go in circles today. <laughs> uh, well, I want to put this out there from the start. Obviously, I'm a writer, writer and editor myself, uh, mostly on sports for newspapers and magazines, though I've done uh, musician interviews and gig reviews in the past. But Greg's book, Van Halen Rising, is the book that every rock fan and writer wishes they could have written. It's um, it's also like the book that needed to be written about Van Halen, talking to their friends and colleagues from their school years and beyond to really offer the most detailed insight into the early years of the band that there has ever been. And it's not even close. So, uh, Greg, a big thank you for doing that for a start. But do you look back on the process with pride now? Uh, well, I definitely do. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, the thing I would say is, and I, was, I always say when I talk about the book, was that it really wasn't something that I had some master plan to write this this big book about Van Allen's early days. It sort of uh, snowballed from an interest that I had in trying to, as a historian, and trying to figure out what those guys did for the years before they got famous and kind of heard bits and pieces from people. And so for it to come together the way it did with uh, so much excitement from fans when it came out and mm-hmm. then the uh, continued praise that I get for it, which is really nice. It's, it's sort of, it, it's sort of hard for me to wrap my head around because again, it wasn't as if I was, that was the, you know, I just at some point just wanted to write the book and I figured, Hey, if you know, some people enjoy it, that's great. I'm writing it for myself. And that was kind of, the the thing I think for anyone who's a writer, you have to write something that you enjoy writing about mm-hmm. uh, with something with a book like this. If you're going to really dive in, it's kind of for me, at least it would be hard. I think for a lot of people to kind of keep this, the interest if you didn't have a, a deep passion for the for the project to, to mm-hmm. make something go from one interview to five interviews and yeah. a couple hundred interviews and then get it to where it comes out as a book. So. Uh, for other people to get so excited about it and be, like you're saying, appreciative, that's very flattering. And I'm very, very kind words from you and other people who uh, say that they really uh, you know, value the book. And that's that's great because, again, it wasn't not my uh, master plan to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, rock and roll and all its craziness, it needs someone uh, who is a historian or a professor of, of some regard to go back and look at the sources properly and, and really tell the story with uh, with truth, basically. Yeah, you know, I think the thing for me was that at some point I kind of realized that the book probably never would be no, a book like this would probably never be written. I, I kind of suspected that the Van Halen brothers were never going to do a, a deep dive into their mm-hmm. past. It just wasn't there. I mean, maybe we'll be proven wrong in the next year or two. Maybe something will come out. But I, I kind of suspect that that's not their their way they, they would um, want to present themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoyed David Lee Roth's biography like everyone did, Crazy from the Heat. But mm-hmm. it's, it's one of these things that it was – he sort of told it as if you're sitting around with him in a bar and kind of jumping from topic to topic. So there was no yeah. linearity to the story of how he would tell Van Halen's beginnings. And so that's what also – as a person who, yeah, who is a trained historian, I really wanted to try to do was kind of figure out kind of where these landmark events took place and then kind of piece it all together because I thought the more I researched that it was more and more remarkable that those guys were able to make it out of Los Angeles and get famous just because they had a lot of things, as I try to show in the book, working against them mm-hmm. in terms of their 
their uh, the context, musical context they came into, and just the situation in, uh, in which they found themselves as a kind of a band that was probably seen by a lot of people as an anachronism because of their heavy rock sound at the time when that mm-hmm. seemed to be kind of eroding as an interest in, in the in the marketplace. So for those guys to go from playing parties and based dive bars to be able to play stadiums in a matter of, of years, it was really, I thought, an amazing story and, um, yeah, one that I wanted to tell because I thought I could I could – I could tell it properly, and I was afraid no one else was going to take the job, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you had uh, a minimal cooperation from Michael Anthony, but uh, apart from that, there was no other cooperation from the band or the record company. So who was your sort of your, your breakthrough source where you could really see the beginnings of something for a book? You know, that's yeah, the uh, – there's a number of there are a number of people. I mean, I think probably the, the, the people who are the most helpful to me, as I should mention, people like um, the Broderick family mm-hmm. and the Velasco family. The the brothers lived in Pasadena, as everybody knows, and they grew up in a on a street called Las Lunas. And there were quite a few uh, kids in the neighborhood. It was kind of the peak of the baby boom, and there were tons of of kids of their age group in the neighborhood. And a lot of these same kids were either musicians or loved rock music. And so when I was able to connect and interview some of the siblings, the Brodericks had three or four brothers, and uh, the Velasco family has um, a a young girl who was quite young at the time, a woman uh, named Jan, and then Mm -hmm. she has a couple of brothers, older brothers, who were all basically grew up with those guys. And they, once I kind of was able to speak to them and kind of build their trust when they realized I was doing this for the right reasons and mm-hmm. I was serious as a fan and they saw that I was trying to recapture in, in many cases, you know, some of the most fun moments of their life to have Van Halen play in their living room. Yeah. In some cases in their backyards, these types of things or just be able to sit in the same room with Eddie Van Halen while he played along the records. Uh, when they, they, you know, sort of saw the value of it, that was a big help to me because when you're trying to do a project like this, you really have to have to count on your own uh, uh, credibility and being good to people and showing mm-hmm. them that your your motives are pure in what you're trying to do because it's about trust because ultimately, you know, people are going to introduce you to other people say, hey, you mm-hmm. can talk to X person who I also know who you don't know because they trust that you're doing this for the right reason. So those I say the Brodericks and the the Velascos, those those families like that who grew up again, they grew up being being close with Ed and still maintain. Uh, to one degree or another relationships with Eddie, whether, you know, be a text message every mm-hmm. few months or something like that. They were, you know, they consider him a friend. And so to know that, that, my, you know, I was doing this to pay tribute to the band and, and not to exploit anybody or make anyone look, you know, in a way that would be uh, harmful to mm-hmm. uh, any of those guys in any sort of serious way. I think they, they knew I was in for the right reasons. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the backyard parties and things there. And as much as I love the book, I find it so bittersweet. Uh, not only was I only three years old when Dave left the band, but I was also halfway across the world. And, you know, uh, reading in your book about Van Halen parties in the California summer just really makes me feel like I missed out on life. So, I mean, when, when you were interviewing these people who were there, did you get the impression that it was there uh, the time of their lives as well? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the one thing I really wanted to try to bring across in the book was that when I hear these stories from people, it, it, they, it, it sounded so fun and innocent. You know, it was an era, an era as we all know, it was before you know AIDS, before a lot of things that were were sort of uh, changed the context in which you know cocaine was still mm-hmm. considered a recreational drug. I mean, we could kind of go through the things. And so when people would talk about these parties and the and the experiences they had and how much fun they were and um, 
And then to think about the fact that they were having Van Halen play these parties mm-hmm. in their in backyards because that was kind of the thing to do for for uh, celebrating music on a local level was you know you if you if you really wanted to have a good time you could go to a bar but uh, in many cases the kids were too young to go to bars and mm-hmm. they would just have these parties in backyards and so yeah it was it was my intent as I spoke to people and, and really heard their celebratory and. Just you know, um, wistful looks back at this this time. It was was kind of a simpler time for them and fun. I wanted to try to capture that dazed and confused vibe from the movie, mm-hmm. where I think that's it's almost exactly latches up at the same time seventy four, seventy five, seventy three, and, and so to try to get that across. But yeah, there's no there's no doubt. I mean, I think you know when you talk to people who are accountants now or you know, mm-hmm. doing any number of different jobs who were with these parties it's interesting you know to hear how they can just kind of look back and laugh and, and think about well that was wild i can't believe i can't believe that actually happened i can't believe there were a thousand kids in the backyard and the helicopter flew over <laughs> trying to spotlight on the band these types of things yeah sort of today would be for a number of reasons sort of unthinkable to imagine in a mm-hmm. suburban environment you know we have Big, obviously a big festival still where people get together and these types of uh, groups of people will, li- will listen to music in large numbers, but to have it you know, happen in a place where, uh, you know, there is a, is a basically a, a, a residential development, mm-hmm. you know, to have that be where a concert is being held in back of a better term. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, an era long gone. And for those folks, it was the time of their life. Oh, it disgusts me. <laughs> well, what did you find out about uh, each member of the band as a young person? You know, personality-wise, what were they like? Well, uh, you know, the, the person I actually probably got the least good grip on what he was like was was Mike, only because there's not as much um, detail written about him in, in interviews. I mean, Mike was never the guy who sort of sat for a lot of interviews. Mm-hmm. and But, what you know, he was a guy who definitely, Mike Anthony was... Who, who, like all these guys, took to music at a very early age. He had a couple of, a couple of bands. One was called Black Opal. Um, I can't remember the other one was Oh Snake was the mm-hmm. other one. And he was he came from a family of music. His father was a trumpet player, and he came from a family of musicians. His, his brothers were all interested in music to one degree or another. Uh, but you know, because he's sort of considered the sort of uh, the, the quiet member of the group, it was mm-hmm. I probably got the least kind of good grip on what he did as a as a child. Now the the brothers, there was a lot a lot of information about them just because they were well they're the Van Halen brothers but mm-hmm. you know I think the interesting thing I really gathered from from talking to people about about Edward and Alex was that really they really did come from very humble beginnings you know that sort of that type of thing can really be oh, exaggerated sometimes in people's biographies but I remember there was one story in fact one of the Velasco brothers told to me was that they so when the boys were, this would be Eddie and Alex, were, let's say, 14 and 16 or something like that, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Velasco brothers and the Van Halen brothers, again, these friends from Pasadena together, uh, all went to the beach to swim. And when they got back to the car, someone had broken into the car. They hadn't locked the car and had stolen their shoes, like had stolen, well, all things like shoes out of the car. Mm-hmm. And so when they went back to the Van Halen house, dropped them off, Mrs. Van Halen, was there and the the Velasco one of the Velasco brothers told me that you could tell that Mrs. Van Halen was just so upset the shoes had been stolen because the implication was that might have been one of the only pairs of shoes they had they didn't have you yeah. know they weren't like a closet full of shoes and this is sort of really hit home for me going wow these guys really didn't come from from privilege at all they grew up in a very you know they did actually uh, obviously have a 
a home. Their, their parents owned a home, but it was very, very humble mm-hmm. beginnings. And so to think about those guys going from that type of circumstance where they were immigrants coming from Holland, don't speak the language, have to really uh, struggle the parents to make ends meet. I believe uh, Mrs. Van Halen worked as a maid, I believed, and a father worked in a hospital when mm-hmm. he wasn't trying to gig playing jazz and big band music. And sort of think of those guys coming from that type of circumstance to be able to rise to the absolute peak of fame was, I thought, really a, a thing that I, I I guess I really hadn't understood. You know, people say, well, you know, obviously Dave came from a more wealthy family. We'll get to mm-hmm. him in a minute. But to think about that story about the shoes really, yeah. really made it hit home to me that, that you know, that, yeah, that's... It's basically that's, the American dream. Yeah, and it's American dream in this that those guys really did, uh, did, didn't come from any sort of privileged background at all. And for their, just their hard work and their dedication to music and their, their, obviously their talents is what allowed them to, to achieve the American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Roth is another, uh, a whole nother story, of course. Roth's, Roth's family circumstance, I mean, his parents divorced at a very early age. So I think there was a lot of, um, you know, he talks about that in the book a little bit, a little bit of, uh, pain and kind of chaos around that home environment where his, I believe his mother moved out of the house. I can't remember, you know, and he moved quite a bit as a child as well, three mm-hmm. or four times. But when he ended up in in the Pasadena area, it was, you know, pretty clear from interviews I had with his friends from high school and middle school who, you know, spent a lot of time with him was that Roth had this dream to be a musician, a singer from a very early age. There's this story I tell in Van Halen Rising where the um, one of the people I interviewed was at the table and they were, you know, kind of all eating their lunches in the middle school lunchroom or the freshman cl- lunchroom at school. And it's like, and what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, it's, I want to be, I want to be a police officer. I want to be this, I want to be that. And, you know, I, you know, Dave basically said, I want to be a, 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 a rock and roll singer or mm-hmm. something. And the kids all laughed, you know, kind of like, yeah, you're, you know, cause it was such a ludicrous, it was like, you know, kind of like when you were a little kid, you say, I want to be an astronaut, but by the time you're 12 or 13, you probably, most kids kind of mm-hmm. realize that, yeah, I'm probably not going to be an astronaut, but he was stuck on that. And to have that single minded focus on pursuing your dream like that, even in the face of, as I really tried to lay out in detail in the book where you have a person where he has to, you know, self-admitted Roth will tell you he's not the most gifted vocalist. He never was a guy who was a natural singer, was never someone who you would hear his voice the first time and go, wow, that guy's got an amazing voice. Mm-hmm. It was always, a, as he said, a work in progress and always had to work really hard to make it sound decent to go from a situation where really nobody thought you were ever going to make it as a singer or even, you know, even good enough to play on the local backyard circuit to a guy who ends up fronting mm-hmm. the biggest rock band in the world by 1984. That's a, a pretty amazing rise to the top as well for Roth and it's for a different sort of way. And so, you know, those are the, the basically the blueprints I had as, as for character sketches for those guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, the music business is in a much different place now than uh, what it was then, but I can't help but think that the story of Van Halen getting signed ought to be great inspiration for young bands today. In other words, get out there and play. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a, it's it's you have to take the lesson away from the Van Halen um, story, which is that you know unless a scene happens in some place where suddenly everyone's going to Seattle to sign bands or everyone's going to. New York or something, you 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 know, you're, it's going to be difficult mm-hmm. if you're living in uh, Flint, Michigan, probably to be able to play in a bar and get discovered or to be able to get a record deal. So it's, it's part of it is like being in the right marketplace where the, those guys were in L.A. Um, but it's also getting uh, in front of the right the right people. Mm-hmm. Of course, the the story of the Van Halen signing comes from the fact that Ted Templeman gets a phone call and, and he goes down and sees them and he's a uh, house producer for Warner Brothers, a vice president. And he's able to to push through a deal for those guys 
but where they had been basically passed over a number of times. But yeah, I mean, I think obviously when you, you also gig as well, that's the other thing that, that provides for a superlative level of, of band talent, not just one guy being good playing, playing in their bedroom or something like that. It's a matter of those guys were good because they played live so much. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think if any, anyone is interested in, you know, trying to make it as a band, I, I would think, yeah, you get yourself in the right circumstance and you have to obviously think of other more creative ways to be able to maybe to get your music to market since major labels aren't going to be laying out millions of dollars to yeah. for rock bands anymore. But you could, you could certainly, I think, make a case that the more you play live, the more your band is going to really be able to shine on record because that's mm -hmm. certainly what happened in the case of, of Van Halen. They were so, they were so tight and so able to pull these songs off pretty live in the studio that was what made that record and the records followed so good mm -hmm. yeah that's one point i was going to make uh obviously when you listen to the gene simmons demos that are uh easily available on on youtube they are so incredibly dry I and mean, ted templeman deserves some sort of award for allowing these people just to play live in the studio yeah i mean i think that's the the thing is that it was interesting to me when i talked to ted about that was that Ted recalled that eventually he did hear the Gene, Gene demo, that someone in the office had it or it had been kind of like someone remembered, oh, yeah, I remember we got this demo from Gene or mm -hmm. someone, you know, basically someone had passed along the demo. And, yeah, very different, different, um, different approach. And, yeah, I mean, Ted obviously saw those guys live like Gene did, but whatever had a different had a different thinking about how to make it make it make it um, come forth on record uh, as I'll lay out in the in the book. That uh, Ted and I are writing together. It's going to come out next year. This mm -hmm. is an authorized autobiography. You know, Ted had seen from his experiences of working with Van Morrison early in his career. Van Morrison was the first big act he produced. That Van Morrison was a guy who would only really, honestly, tolerate one or two takes. He would actually just leave the studio. He was mm -hmm. sort of um, what would the word be? He was he was a he was a challenging person to work with mm -hmm. in the studio because he wasn't going to let anyone really quote unquote produce him. He was just going to say one, two, three, let's go record it. And then maybe one more time. And that was it. And that was, that was it. Yeah. So Ted talked about how you have to kind of get that lightning in the bottle and Van was so good. He could do that. Now, obviously not every act is capable of that type of performance, but Ted could see that Van Halen could do that. And so, you know, cutting the music, having Roth sing along while those guys recorded them, while they recorded the, uh, the the tracks you know overdubbing a guitar solo or two here and there and then having Dave patch up vocals but basically it was to try to get the guys playing together the bass drums vocals uh, guitar all together on one take to get that energy and that that vibe was something that Ted had learned from from Van Morrison mm -hmm. that you you have to um, really not underappreciate the ability of a great musical act when we to get something magical and take from the first yeah. time rather than trying to do it over and over and over and over again where you sort of beat all the life out of it mm -hmm. and it sounds so lifeless basically and that's why the van halen record sounds so good because a lot of it is just first or second musical takes with again with with uh overdubs first couple solos and those other things to patch things up but it was really is just when they're playing it was just those guys playing in the room together yeah, there's there's notably a couple of quote unquote mistakes on Van, uh, Van Halen records uh, that are either left in or you know it's it's Dave messing around and laughing during takes and things like that, and that is definitely part of what sort of makes it more lively. Yeah, I think I think the thing that's also interesting about uh, about that is that that worked for Van Halen in a way that may not have worked for other artists. And that's mm -hmm. where it's really, you know, he, that's capturing the personality. It's not just Ted, but any good producer, you want to capture the personality of your artist. And, you know, the band was so 
was so fun. I think that's the thing that's really, really noticeable on those records is that the, the, just the looseness of how those guys approached their music. They weren't, you know, there's a lot of Sturm and Drang and heavy metal and there's a lot of serious stuff where a lot of political stuff that can kind of be, you know, be in different forms of music. And those guys were not about that stuff mm-hmm. at all. It was just about having a good time. And that was the, 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 the good thing that Ted did and any other good producer who has an act like that is you want to get the personality of the artist on tape. He, yeah. he, you know, he saw that was the, that was what made them, made them so appealing was their looseness, their musical talent, but their looseness and how they, and they don't take themselves too seriously. As you said, there's coughs, there's chuckles, there's other things mm-hmm. that got left on the records that the other producers or maybe other artists who have a much more, you know, had a much more serious view of themselves would have like, would have wanted taken away yeah. from their, their records. Uh, since I heard the name mentioned in regards to Ed, uh, Edward, uh, I'd be really interested in Ted's comparison between him and Charlie Parker. Now, for those who don't know, Parker was a saxophonist in the 40s who was known for re- basically reinventing the instrument with fast soloing and uh, different chord variations. But he also had a, a terrible history of substance abuse and died at 34. Now, from your conversations with Ted, are you able to elaborate on the comparison a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what what Ted would would say, and I probably when we'll get him out on some interviews in a few mm-hmm. months, we'll we'll let him him talk about it. But I think what he would probably I'll try to paraphrase what he would tell you is that Parker was a guy who completely rewrote the rule book in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and the way that type of music was played, and also was a guy who, um, when he soloed, always had something to say, mm-hmm. and that I think is what he would say about. Um, and as well that, you know, there's plenty of guys who play guitar solos and they're good and they're, or they're even very good, but they don't really um, stand out in the way that Parker playing did or way Ed Van Halen's mm-hmm. playing did. And I think when Ted saw, especially the way that Ed approached um, soloing, like, again, musically, I probably can't explain the way Ted would have said as a musician, but the way that Ed would, would solo across chords and would basically go outside chord structures and kind of almost have a jazzy freeform mm-hmm. view to some of his approaches to solos um one of the solos that actually ted points to in that in that instance is simple rhyme mm-hmm. where it's um you know he says it's sort of like he's like blowing through all the chord the chord changes in a way that other guitarists might have just you know followed the chord changes but ed is kind of soloing across them and, and eventually ending up in that coming back to uh, the different chords but yeah. in a way that isn't is uh, as regimented so you know the, the thing that also is worth noting is that ted grew up a jazz buff and actually was mm-hmm. a trumpet player right and so that was his frame of his frame of reference and like we go into some detail about that in the book is mm-hmm. that well ted from a very young age was a guy who was a uh, was performing live and was in, into all of these these uh, superstars of, of jazz and so when when ed saw ed van halen that's who he saw as a frame of reference not like some as some other people would have thought just oh just another wannabe guitar hero guy ted saw the musicality in, in um in Ed that other people who just didn't see it. They just didn't have that frame of reference to have sort of say, oh, this guy is revolutionizing the instrument mm-hmm. and breaking the boundaries in a way that, you know, uh, other people just aren't. Yeah. If, if Eddie was here, he would surely say that that's his uh, falling down the stairs and landing on your feet technique. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's, yeah, I think that's what, what, what Ted was probably trying to get at was there was just this, sense of abandon and right not exactly knowing where you're going but ending up in the right place exactly and that's that's what what ted said that was when he saw you know van halen on just any old night of the week uh, 
in, in Hollywood that wasn't you know wasn't any sort of special show. It was just mm-hmm. a show they were doing at the Starwood Club, and and uh, that was where he came away. And you know we don't know exactly what Ed played that night or what what uh, you know what exactly caught Ted's eye, but there was certainly whatever or ears there were spread. There were certainly must have been some you know some real uh, moments that were just jaw dropping mm-hmm. to, to Ted because Ted said as soon as he heard that he basically like raced out of the building, you know, raced out of the club and was trying to put the wheels in motion to get the band signed as mm-hmm. quickly as possible. Were the I think important thing to note is that there were a number of record labels who had seen the same show, the same act, and were like, No, there's nothing. There's mm-hmm. nothing here. There's nothing worth there's not even you know, they shouldn't even really be um <laughs> playing this yeah. because they're just like dinosaurs. You know, move aside and let these these younger new wave, uh, excuse me, younger sounding new wave groups, punk groups kind of come to the fore. That's the, that's the future of rock. <laughs> this is just old hat. Yeah. One interesting thing that comes across in the book is how much faith Edward placed in the Marshall amp with the Variac. You know, there was a part of him mm-hmm. at some level that believed he wasn't quite so good without it. Yeah. I think, I think that the, the whole Edward Van Halen you know, tone uh, mythic, mythic part certainly was part of that. Was was that? Yeah, he had figured out how to squeeze out a sound out of the guitar and his amp that maybe other someone else had through his own his own um, tinkering. You know, he talks that about that story I relate in the book where the uh, he figured out about the Variac because he had purchased a, a Marshall head that had voltage set for Europe and mm-hmm. had actually blown in, you know, in Los Angeles, he had, bought, he had purchased it and it actually blew the circuits in the house, blew the fuses. And he kind of figured out there was a way to sort of, to deal with, with that by changing the voltage. Um, you know, the other interesting thing too, is that the, the Marshall itself was extremely, extremely hard to control and, and hard to play in a club environment mm-hmm. because you had to, they didn't have what it was called, I guess, a master volume. So you had to crank, you had to crank it up very, very loud to make it sound right. So you talk, you talk um, to people who saw them and say, well, if he had the Marshall, sometimes he would put a pillow in front of it, or he mm-hmm. would do things to turn it around yeah. because it would basically rip people's heads off. <laughs> and so he would actually use a Fender bassman amps, smaller bassman, smaller heads when they would play smaller clubs, but. To kind of get the sound in the studio, and then when they started playing in arenas and in and, and larger venues, yeah, to have that that uh, that device hooked up, which controlled the voltage, also lowered the volume a little bit in the guitar. Was yeah, it was a key for for him getting something that still people are obviously still still chasing. You can do it now with modeling amps through your computer and kind mm-hmm. of and re, you know replicate that exact sound in effect. But to do it with the with all of the electronics that were needed with the tubes and the, the pedals and all the other things that kind of make that sound get dialed in. It was, it was an, yeah, pretty amazing um, piece of work. Just again, showing the technical genius of a guy who was also a, a tremendously gifted musician, but also mm-hmm. had this, this know-how with electronics that yeah. were pretty, pretty unparalleled um, because of all the things he innovated and came up with. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that ability with the hardware, another fascinating man in the Van Halen realm is, is Don Landy. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the group's engineer, uh, you know, not a huge amount is, is known about him really, but in what has been written about him, he comes across as an innovator, a little like Edward. Uh, you know, he works up on his, his own soundboard and stuff like that. Uh, he discovers things, makes them part of his own style. I mean, what can you tell us about Don Landy? Yeah. Don is a, is a guy who got his start in Hollywood as an engineer in the late sixties. So one of the things that people don't know about Don is that Don, 
one of the first big sessions Don ever worked on was on the doors waiting for the sun record, wow. believe it or not. He worked on that as a second engineer. So this would have been like an assistant engineer and uh, ended up doing work for the Everly Brothers and a number of other other groups and eventually got noticed. And so how Ted and Don got hooked up together was that Don worked on a Harper's Bazaar record. Harper's Bazaar being the group that Ted was in the late 60s, the soft pop group. And, and that's how basically Ted got got connected with uh, and with Don and they started started working together. But he's a he is a true was a true sonic innovator. And that mm-hmm. was one of the things that Ted figured out right away because Don did some things on on uh, the Harper's Bazaar record. He did what's called phasing, which is kind of makes this this whooshing, swooshing sound on tape, which was done uh, with actually tape machines back in yeah. the day. Um, and Ted heard Ted heard that, and also uh, was able to get him to work on the first Doobie Brothers record a little bit, and then on the second and third Doobie Brothers record and onward and upward. Um, the other thing I think with that is important to know about about Don was beyond being a great engineer, Don had a real ability to work with guitar players. Mm-hmm. So if you think about guys who Ted and Don worked on, and Don worked on a lot of a lot of albums, just not with with Ted. Um, but, well, I'll focus on the Ted stuff. He worked with uh, Lowell George of Little Feet. Ted and Don did. And so if you listen to the Sailing Shoes record, listen to all the different guitar tones, the slide tones, the weird, just the weird echoes and effects that that um, Lowell George put on record. Those are Don working with Lowell. Then the first Montrose, first and second Montrose record, particularly the first Montrose record, that's was Ronnie Montrose and Don hmm. working together really closely to get those sounds. You know, so so and I can go go down the, the line here with the Doobie Brothers and these other groups, but yeah. particularly with these guys who were sort of the the guitar hero types or the guys who were really guitar innovators, Don had an ability to kind of get um, together with them on a level that they could relate and get these sounds set up in a way that then they were able to get on, on record and Ted was able to kind of place within the way he wanted it, the mix and the, in the, on the records themselves. But there were so many uh, examples of that. I mean, the, you know, even on the Montrose record, I'll go back to that one, um, space station number five, I mean, mm-hmm. let's just listen to the, the end of that with the, with the speeding up of the tape. And then of course the incredible guitar sounds that Don got on that record from basically, you know, messing around with those microphones and working with Ronnie and, and then, uh, getting everything set with Ted the way they wanted it and, and away they went. Yeah. I'm going by memory on this, but is it, quote that, is it true that uh, Don quote unquote uh, stole the tapes to the 1984 album? If my memory is if my memory is correct, Eddie has said on record that he and Don hid from Ted when the album was supposed to be finished, and I guess yeah. those those two stories add up in some way. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that go, we'll go into some real detail about the ni- the making of the 1984 record. There's a whole chapter in the book about the making of the 1984 record. It was mm-hmm. quite a saga, but yeah. So my favorite Van Halen album, by the way. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, and of course, the way it's made, it's just, it's just. Uh, yeah, it's, it's. It'll be interesting to hear to you and your read Ted's take on it. But yes, that's in effect is is accurate. From I don't think Ted fully understood what was going on mm-hmm. until later. But but I think I I think I could probably say that what was going on was that there was a disagreement about mixing that was going on <laughs> and that and so instead of basically everyone getting in the same room probably the way they should have because there were certain personality and other things that were kind of interfering i think with the ways that people could have communicated better there was a decision made by uh, let's just say edward mm-hmm. to basically keep the tapes uh away from ted <laughs> so that 
the clock could be run out. Now mm-hmm. that's kind of my basically, you know, where the record had to be submitted and there was no more time to do it. If you talk to Ted about that, he would say, if we just sat down and talked, we could have worked it out. It wasn't a matter of that. I was trying to pull a power play in those guys. It was mm-hmm. just, they were, they got in a headspace where they, they thought that I was going to force them to do things where yeah. I, I, I wasn't, you know, we would have just worked it out. So, yeah. but yes, that is, that is true. And again, there was a, uh, Without a doubt, there was a certain level of paranoia that was yes. running through the entire operation where... And I wonder what it could have caused that. Right, yeah. And I don't think... And I think, you know, um, you know, Ted will have his take in the book, but I think I think Ted, who doesn't like hold any grudge about this, but just is in retrospect, is just like we, we, we just sat down and gone through it and said, oh, we want the drums to sound like this. Ted would have said, okay, I don't mm-hmm. like it, but it's your record ultimately. You know, it's yeah. not like... It's not like these guys were. Um, it was their first road. It was a six Van Halen record, and I don't think. But uh, just to be have it done in a way that was was um, yeah, it was a, it was probably crazier than it needed to be. That's what <laughs> the, the the takeaway is um, from that. But yeah, that's they they held off submitting the tapes. Probably again, you know, like the best I could ever be able to figure out because. Um, you know, uh, just just they they probably just wanted to keep it in their hands mm-hmm. as long as they could, and so that there would be no time to make. Oh, we're done. You know, sorry, we ran out of time. Yeah, more time to make changes because the album was actually supposed to. If I remember correctly, the album was actually supposed to come out in December, the last week of December, and it actually got pushed back to January mm-hmm. because of this um, delay. <laughs> yeah, uh, how close do you think? Uh, Edward or Alex or whomever it was, Dave, to uh, got to replacing Michael in the first few years of being under contract to Warner's. You know, I can only go on what Billy. I've never heard Michael Anthony talk about this publicly mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, and I, I I don't even know anyone who's ever asked him the question. Uh, I I assume I, I assume based on the way Billy Sheehan has talked about it, and if mm-hmm. I've I interviewed Billy Sheehan before, and I've obviously. Like you probably read many interviews with Billy Sheehan. Billy yep. Sheehan does not strike me as the type of guy who's 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 a big no. drug or alcohol user. Yeah. He doesn't strike me as a guy who's like into like sort of the the rock and roll drama to sort mm-hmm. of to pump himself up. I mean, I, I I suspect there was there were moments where there was frustration for whatever reason about contributions that Mike was making or not making to records, mm-hmm. meaning writing wise that he was was. Um, bought in one fourth on the publishing, which was a decision of the group. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't Mike's power play, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they had, had to thought thoughts about that. It's, it's kind of hard for me to imagine that it really was, was, um, anything more than a few phone calls, but, and that's what it sounds like. But Billy has always made it sound like it was just, you know, it was just conversations and yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they ever played together. You know, they obviously Talos and Van Halen toured in 1980. So I assume that's where it all started. And I presume that at some point Ed and Billy played backstage or played at sound checks and kind of messed around together at some point. But it's, it is kind of a unexplainable chapter in Van Halen history other mm-hmm. than, other than to just to sort of take the, the pieces and put them together, which was that there was a, um, some sort of disgruntlement, among the fact that Mike was not making the same contribution that some of the other guys were making in terms of songwriting was songwriting, excuse me, was getting money for publishing for you know the songwriting. But again, I would always go back to the fact that that was a group decision made in 1977 that was not a Michael Anthony 
power play, you know, this is yeah. the way it's going to be, guys, and you're going to, you're going to take it. Obviously not. I mean, he wasn't in no position to make that type of power play. Yeah. So, um, I would go back you know. to the idea that how much did Alex Van Halen write? It couldn't have been that much. Right. And I, yeah, right. Exactly. And that's the, the thing that's interesting too, is that I, I don't, you know, I've never, as you mentioned earlier, I've never interviewed those guys. I've never spoken to them. Uh, I've never been, you know, within a hundred yards of Eddie Van Halen other than at a concert. So <laughs> I, I don't know what he would exactly say about this, but I suspect that part of the, part of the, the situation was that the correct, the Van Halen brothers, um, you know, you could do it like the Stones did it, which was that, you know, Richards and Jagger write the song. If you write a song, you get the credit for it as the publishing. Same thing with the Beatles did. They didn't, you know, they didn't give uh, Ringo credit for songs. He didn't mm-hmm. write, he didn't get publishing for those songs. But I suspect that at some point, Eddie's loyalty to his brother kind of made it yes. uh, a default choice to say, you know, he he jams with me as I come up with these riffs and mm-hmm. I'm writing the riffs and I'm writing the chord changes. It's his name too. Correct, it's his name too. And so, you know, and again, they're not the only group that did that, but you can be sure it's it's not the first time in rock history that that's caused caused tension. Where mm-hmm. you know they 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 did it to be all for one, one for all brothers, and literally the Van Hills were brothers, and probably was yes, it would have been difficult to say, oh yeah, Mike, you're not getting a cut, but my brother's getting a cut, and Dave's going to get a cut because he writes, but she won't get any money. Mm-hmm. Um, so to make you know that's what they did, but yes, it, it clearly that clearly was a a sticking point down the road for. Edward, at least, for sure. I don't know about Alex, but I would assume so, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, notably, in, in, in Sammy Hagar's autobiography, he says that uh, Mike agreed to take temp, uh, 10%, uh, and actually Mike gave the final vote to vote against himself. So uh, Sammy and his manager, Ed Leffler, uh, voted to keep it uh, four-way, a four-way split. Edward and Alex voted to downgrade Michael, and Michael actually accepted what Edward and Alex said and took the 10%. Yeah. You know, I, it's something that you look back and you think, I know that Sammy's kind of hard about Mike on that in that situation. But I mean, I, I, I assume that, that Mike sort of saw it as, you know what? <laughs> I'm in this great rock band. Mm-hmm. I made a lot of money. I'm not a drug user. I'm not a drinker. I'm not a gambler. I have plenty of money and these guys are difficult to deal with. And yeah, you know, I'm just going to ride it out because I like being in Van Halen. I don't know, you know, I don't know his thought process on that, but I suspect that he sort of recognized maybe on some level that, Hey, if I, if I don't go along with this, they'll just kick me out. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, I don't know that for sure, but that would be, I certainly, I don't think it's a unreasonable supposition to think that that's, (laughs) I think that would cross anybody's mind. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't go along with this plan, it's like, I'll just get replaced. Yeah. They'll get someone else in there who will take that much money or less, you know. I have so, to say, uh, I, I will quickly get on my high horse about this one. Not uh, not in terms of the money, that's fine. The guys can do whatever they want. But anybody who disregards Michael Anthony's, um, uh, what he gave to the band, I, I mean, okay, you can say that uh, it's uh, not as important as Ed's guitar or maybe even Dave Swagger, but those harmonies, never mind the bass playing, the harmonies are import- are as important to Van Halen as way more important than anything Alex Van Halen ever put to tape. And I'm not having a go at Alex. Alex is a great drummer, of course. But how many songs on the first Van Halen album would they really had uh, would have been able to do to as le- uh, that level uh, right. if they didn't have Michael there? Right. I mean, there's, yeah, there's no, there's no question about that. In fact, Ted talks about the fact that, uh, you know, Mike's voice was, was, uh, so strong that Mike was saying his part of the harmony and then Ted would often double mm-hmm. Ed's part. 
uh, you know, Ed could sing, but not as well as Mike. And to sort of fill it out, they would they would record, you know, whatever um, whatever Ed's part was in the, of the of the three part harmony. Ted would would sing that exact same part, and they would double it. So like Dance the Night Away is a perfect example mm. of that. They're Ted singing on that with with Ed along, you know, the same the same uh, part of that three part harmony where Mike's singing and Dave's singing. And so that's yeah. I mean, there's that, and of course, you know, uh, one of the other things I would I would say is that Mike was the was the right bass player for that. I mean, I, I, you know, I love Billy Sheehan and it might've been an incredible, I would love to hear you know, Billy Sheehan and Ed play together on a song, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, Billy go up to 5150, bang on the gate and let those guys, you know, yeah. those guys put on their instruments and play anything like play a cover song. I would love to hear Billy playing with Ed, obviously, mm-hmm. but I would imagine it would have provided for a much more, um, you know, a different, a very different sound than yeah. what we're used to beyond the minus of the harmonies, but also listen to the way that Eden and Smile was done. There was, you know, B- Billy and, and the title stuff, Billy's, Billy plays a very, very different type of bass yeah. than Mike does. And so one of the great things about Mike was Mike just sort of played bass and stayed mm-hmm. out of Ed's way. Yeah. That was what, and that's what you would do. I mean, like, you know, it's like playing with Hendrix or something. You didn't yeah. see him like, uh, you or know, John uh, Atwistle. Yeah, right, right. Well, right, and that's the that's the exact the exact reverse where you had Townsend played all chords, mm-hmm. a lot of chords, and wasn't not as a superior lead player. And Endwhistle played all this, you know, incredible these lines, and they, it was the exact opposite. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I would I would would say is that it would have probably been it would have been cool to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not that I was that thing might be kicked out of the group, but it would have been cool to hear that. But it probably would have been a very different type of um, Van Halen sound. Yes. Um, you know, and again, maybe that also had to do with the with the money situation. I don't know. Maybe that was like, well, we'll kick. You know, that that's the basically what the driving force was that knowing that Billy would take less. Obviously, mm-hmm. Billy was in a very, uh, very different position than the guys in Van Halen, where Talos was, uh, you know, in effect, a, you know, basically a band that hadn't really broken. Mm-hmm. They'd had a record deal, but they were certainly were not any sort of big selling act. And I think Billy talks about how he was still driving a Ford Pinto, and when he got the David Lee Roth gig. Yeah. Uh, as someone who was right there in his fandom, can I ask you to, d- to describe your feelings uh, when you heard uh, a, a few of the things I'm going to mention now? So what, what were your feelings when you first heard Jump? You know, so Jump was really the first Van Halen song that I actually can 100% be sure that I, I heard. I would mm-hmm. say like I, I'm almost positive I heard Pretty Woman on the radio, but I, you know, it didn't really do anything for me in terms of that. But, um, you know, so I thought the video was like everybody else in America thought was so cool. And mm-hmm. I love the guitar solo. And I just, the whole personality came through so well in the, the video. But for me, the, the thing about jump is that I bought the 45 first. So I went to the record store, bought the jump single and then played jump a bunch of times on the little record player in my bedroom and then mm-hmm. flipped it over and heard house of pain. Yeah. And that was, man, that was the thing actually that got me. And I kind of hacked around on a guitar a little bit. Uh, there was a guitar in, in uh, in our house that I had played a little bit kind of trying to play it, but never really was that into it. But once I heard that, I was like, wow, mm-hmm. I want, I want to play like that. And, uh, I, I miserably failed at that, at that goal, but nonetheless, that incredible, uh, tone and just the, the, the wild lead playing and the tremolo work and the, just, just the whole, the whole thing sound. That was what made me excited about Van Halen, uh, was that, that song house of pain, even more than, in, 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 I shouldn't say more, but in a different sort of way than jump. I sort of like, Oh, I get it. This is, this is hard rock. This is really with a whole different level of, um, you know, and I'd heard, I'd heard my share of hard rock at that point, but that mm-hmm. was maybe a, a fan. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, then how did you feel, uh, or what are your memories of, of the time whenever you first heard that David left the band? 
You know, I, I, I was just thinking about this recently uh, because I saw someone, I think at VH Links, had posted a link to the the uh, Farm Aid show. Uh, yeah, I just the, watched you know, that. Right past, right past in the last month or two, right? And I, the funny thing is, going back, it's I've, I've looked through a lot of newspaper articles at the time. You know, magazines lagged way mm-hmm. behind. You know, you would get a magazine, it would be two-month-old news almost yeah. always. And so there was that so even with Rolling Stone, it's something like a was like a month long lag, even though that was coming out every other week or something like that. Uh, but I remember seeing the Farm Aid broadcast and kind of like that's when it really hit home that it was happening. It's almost like when your parents are talking about they're going to get a divorce or something like that. You don't really <laughs> want to believe it. Yeah. You're sort of like, well, dad will come back. Or, you know, it's not going to happen. And then suddenly, like, it's they go to the they go to the. Uh, you know, they go to the courthouse and the divorce papers are finalized and it's over. And you're like, mm-hmm. wow, they really didn't get divorced. And that was sort of the shocker. It was like, he really, it's, it's really happening. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, I remember hearing it on MTV, there'd be, you know, Martha Quinn would come on and say something. There's been rumblings about Sammy Hagar joining the band and there'd be newspaper articles and, um, where, you know, I'm sure I saw some of those. I was a pretty avid newspaper reader as a kid where there'd be, you know, rumored the rumor corner from whatever newspaper reporter would say there's, you know, David Lee Roth is leaving Van Halen to make a movie. And But when you saw that broadcast live, mm-hmm. Sammy and Ed together, there was no denying. I mean, there was no denying that this is happening, that, mm-hmm. that Sammy is, is joining Van Halen. Yeah. Um, and I think actually he announced it from the stage that I think he said, I'm joining Van Halen or something like that. So Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, that was the... You know, for me, I always just kind of assumed it was going to be a thing where, oh, you know, it, it's just a a lot of a lot of media puffery about this going to happen, and there's disagreements. But there, you know, of course, of course, David Ross not going to leave Van Halen, mm-hmm. but you know, yeah, it happened. Yeah, and just lastly, then, uh, what did you think when you first heard the fifty one fifty album? Because I have to say, if if I had been in that situation. Bought the fifty one fifty album, taken it home, and heard the first track is good enough. I might have thrown the album out the window. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you, as a kid, I was I was so excited about just Van Halen. You know, and I got it. Um, I was not. You know, I played it quite a bit. I definitely was. You know, um, would would fast forward over time through some of the ballads and get to like get up or some of the other stuff mm-hmm. that was the heavier heavier stuff. Um, I always start the album. Why can't this be love? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, good. Yeah, good enough. I mean, the lyric is sort of horrible. Classic, classic Sammy lyric. Uh, definitely a classic Sammy lyric. Yes. Um, but you know, I I never liked it as much as 1984. I mm-hmm. saw Van Halen 51-50 tour twice in New Jersey over four day period when they played. I think they played four nights in New Jersey, and I saw them twice. Uh, you know, for me, I was much more engaged with eat him and smile and again it doesn't mean i didn't like 5150 mm-hmm. but I, I was much more somehow that much more spoke to me about the spirit of what i liked about van halen because mm-hmm. at that point i'd kind of gotten into the other van halen records and kind of gone back and bought diver down bought fair warning bought the other records and so uh you know the uh the whole roth approach with the the cover songs and the ways that he drew on different musical genres to you know basically did like a big band song with i'm easy and did did the frank sinatra stuff kind of you know kind of to me all made sense when you think about happy trails and big bad bill and some of the other stuff that they had done um you know the cover songs had done in some early records and then of course the the uh the really high energy stuff like shy boy and elephant mm-hmm. gun i really loved so you know for me i 
that's an that's a record that I have a lot a lot of trouble re, 5150 a lot of trouble revisiting. I will listen to even smile on occasion. I mean, I almost never go back and listen to 5150. It's sort of a product of the of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you sort of can see that now as I think as the as the and that's that was Edward Van Halen's vision for what he wanted Van Halen to become. And yes. so God bless him. I mean, he he got what he wanted on tape. Those were songs he he wrote, he yep. loved, mm-hmm. and. They were huge hits, and you know, I, I you know, I, I, uh, I pref- actually prefer OU812 mm. only because this, I like some of the like the the the, um, the non keyboard songs better yeah. on that song that record. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, it's these were the, basically you know the thing other people should understand too. The other thing that people should understand as well is that you know those were songs. Some of those songs for sure, like Good Enough, um, for sure. Dreams, I know another one, and there's at least one other song in there that'll come to me. Summer nights that that Dave heard and felt uninspired, and so best of both worlds. Just a rumor too, but I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, I, I I sort of have had that piece together in my head from different interviews that Dave has done over the mm. years, and kind of talking about that. But you know, he, those are songs that he didn't didn't feel inspired about. Maybe he could, maybe because he couldn't sing over Dreams, whatever you want to say. But that was that was the other thing too, is that um, you know, there'd always been this partnership where. One guy writes the music. Mm-hmm. One guy writes the uh, you know the bass, the uh, the melodies and the lyrics, and that was Dave's Dave's part. And Dave didn't feel inspired, and so there was you know a whole host of reasons for the, the breakup. But I think it's in some ways it's as simple as that. The music that Dave was they you know they couldn't get on the same page musically. Yeah, trying to make that that record. Um, the rehearsals were a disaster, and I've heard that from from Don Landy himself. But that mm-hmm. was just it. Just was not working by any stretch of the imagination. It's just constantly, you know, those, those, when they rehearsed together in 1985, early 1985, there was just a lot of tension. It was just not a very, it was just a very toxic environment mm-hmm. when, when they were all together in the same room. And so, yeah, that's, but that's what, you know, he got Sammy to, to, uh, to buy in and, and God bless him, Sammy, uh, as we all know, Sammy was the lead singer in Van Halen for many years. When Sa- to me, when Sammy is great, Sammy is great, and when Sammy is bad, Sammy is bad. Yeah, I think you know. For me, and not as and not as a vocalist, I should say, as a lyricist. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Exactly. That's what I know. I know what you meant. So for me, yeah, you you have to think about <laughs> Sammy. It's <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I actually would would tell people. Anyone who says Sammy can't write lyrics would say, I would say, I can't try 55 is a brilliant lyric. I mean, it's a brilliant lyric, but he was, he was much better at writing kind of that, that type of, um, lyric than when he would be, you know, writing about, you know, cars and that type of stuff. Yeah. He was about sort of like how he wanted to compare a woman to a hamburger or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever he was like talking about. That was really where he didn't quite do as, um, do as well. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, you know, even uh, I mean, he wrote great stuff. Like you know, if you look at some of the, even just look at the greatest hits albums, for example, um, uh, from his solo career, "I'll Fall in Love Again," "Eagles Fly," "Give to Live," "Give to Live," yeah. Um, uh, There's only one way to rock. Um, Two sides of love. I think these are all great songs, and I, the, the, to me, that's the Sammy High bar. And then you know, you right. just sort of alluded, sure. you just sort of alluded yeah. to it there. You know, up for breakfast when he comes back in 2004 with Van Halen. Yeah, no one needs to listen to that again. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, again, I know we're kind of saying the same thing as, like, yeah. you know, people, I, I have, uh, you know, I, I have fun with Sammy on Twitter. I'm actually, you know, I have an enormous respect for Sammy. I would love to shake his hand and hope he didn't read my, my tweets, which were mocking <laughs> him, but it's just his tongue in cheek, right? It's just always tongue in cheek with Sammy. And, uh, you know, he wrote, uh, you know, 
I've done everything for you. I mean, that's a, that's yep. like a mm-hmm. you know a tremendously good lyric. I mean, that's a that's a great great song. Um, as we all know, I mean, as a pop song, it's a, just a, it's a great song. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, when, right when you know, when Sammy's Sammy, he's Sammy, right? I mean, it's like yeah. you know, and that just sort of like that sort of gets it across. It's a little best of uh, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the band has done so little to preserve its legacy in terms of DVD releases and box sets? I, mean, I look, I, I look extremely jealously at uh, Brian May and Queen, who have done such a remarkable job faulting, uh, finding the multi tracks and putting the effort into, you know, remixing the audio for DVDs. And you know, we're stuck with bootlegs and uh, a VHS master of Live Wide and Net that's just been dumped on the DVD. <laughs> you know, uh, I would love to be able to actually sit down and ask the brothers that question mm-hmm. i i suspect there are a few things going on again without having actually spoken to them about that you know number one i think they are obviously living at an income level where they don't have to worry about uh, worry about that mm-hmm. uh, you know some other artists might who might you know um naturally want to sign on i mean i'll give you an example i mean i don't know for sure but i imagine that the estates of the guys in the ramones are probably you know the Ramon records didn't sell enormous amounts. Mm-hmm. They probably make a good living, but not like the living that, you know, the type of record sales that Van Halen made. So when, when uh, Rhino Records comes to you and says, let's do a uh, Ramon's box set or a Ramon's re-release, I'm sure that the estates are, you know, when those guys were alive, we're like, sure, you know, um, there's number one. So I think probably the, just the overall success of the band. And I, I just, I just don't get the impression that, Ed has that Jimmy Page approach to it in his mind where he loves kind of revisiting hmm. what he's done in the past. I mean, we all wish that Ed would be, you know, pull a Jimmy Page and go in the studio and pull out all the old tapes with Don Landy and sit there and like re-listen to things and then put together this, put together these, these bonus tracks. I mean, there is, I, I won't go through it all for the sake of time, but there is material that could be released for sure. I know it for a hundred percent fact, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether those guys consider it worthy of release, you know, I'm not talking about like, finished songs that were just always, you know, left off records. I'm, I'm more talking about you could do things like, you know, an alternate guitar solo with this song or change, you know, an alternate vocal and kind of put together a nice um, set of um, bonus tracks that would really be interesting to people, give different views and perspectives on Van Halen material uh, that they certainly could do and I think would be would be great. But mm-hmm. I, I just, I suspect it's the financial issue and I think there's just not, there's, for whatever reason, that they've never been interested in preserving history. Now, I don't mean that like, it's like throwing out his old guitars or doesn't have family photographs around the house. But I just think that they don't see that in terms of a public face where it's important, like the who does or yeah. Led Zeppelin or these other groups where they think, you know what? I'm sure Pete Townsend doesn't need more money, but he, he, they put out these releases because they see the legacy of the band. They know the fans want it and they want to, to preserve that history in a very public sort of way. And mm-hmm. so I just think that to those guys, the albums speak for themselves. Um, you know, uh, and, to, and for me to know that those guys have remastered the the the, the first six albums a couple of times mm-hmm. now, I mean, to me it was just a complete missed opportunity. And I, 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 you know, I can't even, you know, personally, I can't even hear the difference between the 2002 remasters and the more recent remasters. So it's like, what yeah. bother? You know, it's like unless you have like a superb system in some like time to sit there with a set of headphones and go. Oh yeah, I can hear the you know the the guitar in the in the uh, the soundscape of the mix is a little bit you know brighter here or something. I mean, you're not going to hear it, so I don't I don't see what the the purpose of that doing that without adding something else. But again, I I, I suspect that those guys just think the records speak for themselves. 
They've never written books. Mm-hmm. They've never, you know, they've never done any of that stuff. And whatever, you know, whatever the beyond the scenes motivation is, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I just suspect that they, they just don't have any interest in that. Now, Roth, you know, Roth has done his biography. Um, I've always been kind of amazed as well that even whether it's, Roth doesn't want to do it or hasn't tried to do it, but I know there is there is actually material in, or there should be material in the vault. There's at least one song in the vault from the Eat Him and Smile mm-hmm. uh, sessions, which could be released, and there's some other stuff that probably is there as well that they could they could release. Um, and certainly, I think that would have an appeal on the marketplace to some extent. Not like a Van Halen record, but certainly that's a you know something they could do. I don't I don't even know why that's never been done. Yeah. Um, other than Dave is just moving forward as well, but you know it's 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 as a fan of the band it's profoundly disappointing but also it's something that I, you know again with writing the Van Halen Rising book it kind of gave me an opportunity because again I, to you know I kind of knew in my gut that those guys are never going to write yeah. you know if Eddie and Alex are going to write a book together or something you know the Van Halen brothers tell their stories and you know my book might not be that interesting but I kind of knew that those guys were not going to do that you know I just knew it and mm-hmm. you know it just was that was why I wanted to kind of to, to take a shot at kind of trying to preserve that history because I think the beyond the music, just the whole story was something that was uh, underappreciated by people because yes. those guys haven't that they haven't sold it the right way or not sold it that you know they haven't told it the right mm-hmm. way they sold it I mean, so they told it. Yeah, you, you just obviously did an incredible job putting it all together. Um, just last couple of questions and to wrap up because you've been very generous with your time already. But do you think now at this stage of his life that Edward is happier just making guitars and amps? And he's, he's more happy doing that than he is playing to an audience or making a record? You know, my honest, honest to God opinion is that I don't think Edward Van Halen thinks that people are interested in hearing him play guitar without Dave or Sammy. Mm-hmm. I don't mean like, not like, you know, a jam and like Nam or something like that, or like the, like, you know, you know, whatever on the stage at the Smithsonian. But I, I don't think Edward and Alex can imagine themselves doing something outside of that. You know, I, I've, I've mentioned this before. I mean, can you imagine if Edward and Alex called up Jeff Beck and said, Hey, let's get a bass player and we're just going to call, you're just going to do an instrumental album. It's not a Van Halen record. It's not a Jeff Beck record. We'll just call it whatever Beck and Halen or Van Halen or something like that. And we'll just, mm-hmm. you know, we'll do four songs together. Yeah. I mean, I would think Jeff Beck would be like another Starfleet uh, yeah, project. Yeah. Sure. Or something, right. Or something like that. And like, you know, it doesn't have to be compared with Van Halen. It could be, mm-hmm. they could like, you know, do wacky instrumental stuff that, you know, maybe Ed has a couple of riffs and Beck has a couple of riffs and they could kind of just trade solos. People mm-hmm. would go crazy for that. But I suspect that because let's face it, there's always, you know, there's, there's never been particularly um, easy relations with Roth, even since he's been back in the group. I mean, mm-hmm. if you talk to anybody who kind of knows the scene behind the scenes, it's not like those guys are like hanging out, you know, you know, at, at the house drinking coffee late at night, like, you know, clapping each other on the back. There's always been sort of this ease between the two guys, even since Roth and Eddie, since the reunion's gone and there's, you know, Sammy's clearly um, persona not rata to those guys. And so yeah. I suspect that part of that is, is that and you know it's to me if I would ever deem myself worthy in some sort of alternate universe to advise those guys which of course I'm not worthy just you know to say like do you know call Brian May mm-hmm. do something with Brian May do you know this is this is it doesn't have to be anything like Van Halen but if you guys enjoy playing and I presume they still do to some level it doesn't have to be some sort of high pressure thing you don't have to tour behind it just do it for 
you know, for the sake of um, being able to put your music out there without feeling prisoner to Van Halen, because I suspect that's what it's sort of, you know, it's just the tours are too, probably too onerous and yeah. struggling. Obviously, everyone knows that it's been struggling with some sort of whatever it is, health issue. I mean, I think that's kind of an accepted fact now that something's going on yes. where he's dealing with some medical issues. And so I can imagine that, yeah, doing a, a, an arena tour or whatever, any sort of Van Halen tour is just, you can't do it. But, you know, go in your, go in your studio and make, make music. Um, but I, you know, I can only presume that that's, that's something that he doesn't really want to do or mm-hmm. doesn't think that people would, would buy into or he doesn't think it's worth it. I don't know. But I, you know, I always, the, again, the person who always comes to mind is, is, is Jeff Beck. You know, yeah. I just think that would be, Beck is at the top of his game. Eddie still got it. I think that would just be such a remarkable pairing and one of those legacy things where those guys could could do something together. Where it's you know obviously uh, Beck in some ways you know passes that torch to Eddie with the with the um, the guitar hero thing in the seventies. You know that sort of that Eddie was a new generation. Beck was from the Yardbirds generation. It would be it would be great. Now again, I don't even know if those guys are, are friendly or whatnot, but I would assume that again, if you're Eddie Van Halen, you call up. I don't know. You call up Pete Townsend. And say, oh man, I was just thinking Pete Townsend because you, you remember the story. Awesome. You remember the story when, uh, like, uh, Eddie said that Pete was mad at him because he didn't reply to a telegram. Do you remember that from the eighties? Yeah, I mean they were going to do this thing together in eighty five. Like, yeah, imagine like call up Pete and say, "Hey Pete, you know we never did that thing in eighty five. Let's do two songs. We'll mm-hmm. do like an old, an old style. We'll release it on a forty five for just for record store day, <laughs> and we'll just do two songs and we'll for fun. And you know, I'm sure Pete will be like, okay. I'm sure Pete Townsend has a thousand songs. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can imagine like he's like, let's do this one and just just do it, right? I mean, just um, you know, Pete could play acoustic guitar, Ed could solo, and they could do this thing where again it would be just you know to break out of that box. Again, I don't know that for sure, but I suspect that's what what the deal is that, you know, um, you, you mentioned, you mentioned Sammy there. Um, and I would go one step further and say that somebody has convinced Eddie that the only Van Halen that people are interested in is with Dave. I know with Sammy, it's, I don't know, it's too eighties or it's not cool enough. I think some, I think someone has convinced Eddie or perhaps the other members of the band that it, it's Dave or nothing. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that I could buy that. I mean, I, I think, I think probably there's a lot of, I do actually think that there is probably some truth to the story that Sammy talks about, about the, the, the Cabo Wabo thing that that was probably yeah. really would stick. I mean, again, you know, I, I, the story I would compare it to for myself is like when I was in, in the nineties, I owned some Apple stock, not a lot. <laughs> it was like, I was, I owned like, you know, I don't 15 shares of Apple and I sold them and made, you know, a few hundred dollars. And I was like patting myself on the back. And now I look, of course, the worst, you know, it'd be like, <laughs> I don't ever calculate. I don't even think about it. No, don't. You know, so I can imagine if, even if you're a wealthy person and you think I missed out on millions and millions of dollars because I think someone deceived me in a business transaction. Again, I'm not saying that's what happened. I don't know mm-hmm. what happened, but that I, you know, the Sammy talks about that with the Cabo Wabo thing in his book. And there's been talk about that, that the brothers basically sold their shares back to Sammy when they all purchased the club together. And then yep. Sammy turned around and leveraged it to, to make all this money. I, you know, I suspect that that's, <laughs> that probably would not be easy to swallow. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at what these sold Seagrams for, I can't remember how many millions of dollars Sammy sold the brand to Seagram. So I, I, I suspect there's probably something to that story um, because that would be, you know, that would kind of go beyond the sort of, I don't like Sammy because he hasn't said nice things about me. Mm-hmm. Right. It would be a little bit more of a, I mean, guys who are in bands say nasty things about each other all the time and still go on tour like Mick and Keith. I mean, they sort of, you know, so I don't, I don't know, but that's, that probably is too. And yeah, and I think, I think you're right though about the, the um the back end of that with the with the sort of notion that 
you know, Sammy isn't perceived as the guy anymore. Roth is. And I, you know, look, if you were to ask me, do I want to see a Van Halen tour with Sammy or no Sammy or no tour at all? I mean, obviously I'm going to say, I'd rather see them sort of t- sort of, uh, tour with Sammy. Sorry. Yeah. I have to turn to my Roth, my Roth army card or something like that, <laughs> but it's, but it's true. I mean, I, you'll I, never I, get it I'd back. Rather, right. Yeah, probably not. I mean, but I'd rather see them do something if rather than nothing. And I, you know, I think, I actually think there would be, I mean, there clearly would be enough of a buzz yes. with a tour with Sammy to do those songs that actually, they might actually be able to outdo the previous tour with Roth only because they sort of were seeing diminishing results mm-hmm. because, you know, the first they were playing arenas, then you go down and you're, eventually you're playing sheds, you know, these sort of outdoor amphitheaters yeah. where they're smaller just because people have seen it before. It's like everything else. It's like the first Kiss reunion, you play stadiums, and eventually you're playing casinos. And that's just the way it is with I, these types of reunions. And you, you, ha- so. you would have to think that Irving Azoff, from a management uh, perspective, is saying, okay, we've done at least two tours with Dave, several legs on each tour. This is now finishing. What's the next big business move you can make? Someone has got to have put that to Edward at some point. Oh, I'm, well, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, you know... Um, I mean, just looking at what Irving has done with the Doobie Brothers. Mm-hmm. Irving's taken over management of the Doobie Brothers in the last three or four years. And, you know, these guys are now up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They did the Eagles thing. They're playing Vegas. You know, that's the type of thing that a manager like Irving, who has you know, the <laughs> the power of the gods mm-hmm. in the rock world, I mean, he really does. I mean, he is the, the guy. So, yeah, that's who they have uh, uh, in their corner, obviously. And so you can be sure that these things come, you know, come whatever certified letters come up there. And it's like, whatever, you know, time, time, Hey, we can do this. What do you think about this? And, you know, um, for whatever reason it didn't, it is not happening, but yes, there were, you know, I, I, as I said, I would really look at the career of the Doobie brothers of the last four or five years and really see what Irving has, has done to help those guys, you know, kind of, kind of, um, elevate themselves mm-hmm. to a class that they deserve to be in, which is that they are, you know, while they're not Zeppelin, obviously, but they are a band that, has an enormous, huge catalog of hits. People love the Doobie Brothers songs. And, you know, you put anybody in a room for 15 minutes and play them Doobie Brothers music, you're like, oh, I know that song. I know that song. Mm-hmm. I know that song. Because they had so many hits. And so, you know, Irving was able to sort of get them in a position where they can um, do much more lucrative tours and be a much higher profile act by getting on the, that, that stadium tour with the Eagles, where they did the L.A. and the New York and that whole whole thing. And so, yeah, that's the type of stuff that Irving Azoff can do in a heartbeat. And, of course, of Ed and Alex... However, they wanted to tour with Sammy or with Roth. You know, he could, he would definitely make it happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, I want to thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast today. I mean, do you want to get some plugs out there for your books, social media, anything else? Sure. Uh, people are happy to follow. Would like to be happy to follow me on uh, Twitter at Greg Renoff. So it's at G R E G R E N O F F. I have a a Facebook page for my Van Halen Rising book. I'll eventually do one for the TED book when that comes out. So it's uh, backslash Van Halen Rising, all one word. Um, and I'm, yeah, I am going to be uh, releasing with Ted Templeman his authorized biography, which is called Ted Templeman, uh, Platinum Producers, Life and Music. It's going to be released by ACW Press. That will be out in April of 2020. It's available now for pre-order on Amazon, so you can kind of go up there and lock in lock in your your order. And of course, when they discount it, hopefully, which they usually do when they release these books, you'll you know you'll you'll get the price, whatever the discounted price when it comes out. But yeah. I would really appreciate if people would uh, would do that as well. That would be really helpful in terms of getting 
more um, for uh, viewage for the book mm. online if you pre-order the book. And then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for this new book that's going to come out. It's going to trace Ted's life from his beginnings in Santa Cruz, California, or as I mentioned earlier, he grew up playing jazz and sort of was in some early rock and roll bands in the in the late 50s up through his career as a pop star in the late 60s in a band called Harper's Bazaar all the way up through the end of his his career in the late 90s where he uh, worked for Warner Brothers up through about 1997 where they had that big house cleaning where they kind of uh, changed in the world of Napster. The whole industry started to change. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Ted's, Ted's career is pretty remarkable beyond Van Halen, Doobie Brothers, Little Feet, Carly Simon, Montrose, Michael McDonald. I mean, I could go continue to go down the list, but he's got an incredible catalog of, mm-hmm. of hits and was responsible for, you know, sales of somewhere. I don't, I, I'm not quite sure the number, but it's upwards of, of 75 million records. Wow. Um, Ted, Ted has his name on that have sold. And so it's, uh, it was a real honor to work with him on this. I am continually um, kind of amazed at, uh, at the life he lived and how generous he's been with, with sort of wanting to tell the story to me and allow us to do this book together. And it was, it was my idea by the way. And, uh, Ted, Ted, mm-hmm. Ted agreed. And so I'm, you know, it's, um, it's, it, I think it's going to do, do justice to his legacy, but also the legacy of his artist. And I think that's what I would want to leave people with is that, you know, to write this book for Ted, a lot of it was just that he feels like, you know, he worked with Van Morrison and, you know, all these incredible, these incredibly talented, people and so for him he really wanted to pay tribute to the people who built his career which were the guys who wrote the songs and played on the records and you know kind of gave him a gave him the the vote of confidence to hire him as a producer and those types of things so i'm looking forward to people reading it um since we talked a lot about van halen it'll be very very van halen centric and just because of the six van halen records and they were so important to ted's career and then of course the dave sammy Mm -hmm. uh saga is in great detail because Ted was in the middle of all that stuff at Warner Brothers with the, the you know, who's going to produce what, you know, what Dave's quitting the band, Sammy's joining, and up through um, Dave's solo career as well, mm-hmm. where Ted was involved with that. So it's, uh, if you're a Van Halen fan, there'll be a lot in there. But, you know, I think there's, a, you know, for anyone who's a rock fan who wants to dive into some of these other records, we go into some real depth into a lot of the, the, the albums that maybe people don't even know that Ted produced that are big big ones as well yeah well I will have my pre-order on Kindle just like I did for Van Halen Rising I think I've read the Van Halen Rising book twice I also have the audio book I think I've listened <clears throat> pardon me I think I've listened to that three times so uh, yeah I've got my uh, my money's worth out of Van Halen Rising I'm sure the Ted Templeman book will be just the same much appreciated Brian really appreciate talking to you too it's great fun thank you so much for taking the time well, thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, at hardcopy.ie, you'll also find podcasts fo- focusing on soccer and pro wrestling. So if that's your thing, make sure to visit www.hardcopy.ie and maybe we can get uh, Greg back on in the future to talk about the TED book whenever it is out. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening and goodbye.